Good morning. Y'all doing all right? Y'all doing all right? Yeah, so-so? All right. It's, uh, it's rainy and cool out there. Uh, so uh, doesn't that make you want to study more? No? No? <laughs> all right. Well, it's good to be with you all again, and uh, this will be the concluding talk. Uh, we're exploring how art can contribute to the formation of our humanity. Now, uh, as, a, uh, as a kid, I, I grew up in Guatemala, and uh, we played soccer. How many of you are, are soccer players? Yeah? Soccer players in the house? All right, all right. Well, uh, I played soccer for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and then some. Soccer was the national sport. It's, it's what you did if you were Guatemala. It's like hockey here, right? It's just what you do. Now, on the field, uh, two emotions prevailed. Complete ecstasy and abject weeping, sometimes in the same moment. Because that's what it meant to be a soccer player. You are completely ecstatic or completely uh, crying your head off. But if you score a goal, you're probably doing the same, you know, both of them at the same time. Now, we, uh, we would look like this. this. This is an appropriate emotion to express. Uh, not that. That was not the appropriate emotion <laughs> to express. So the emotional vibrancy of the culture of Latin America was the only world I knew as a child. And I lived there from zero to 13. Now, at 13 years old, I moved to Chicago, North Shore, Chicago. I entered a much different world, if you will, a colder world. Uh, to, to put it gently, crying was not cool. Now, this is the way it worked in Guatemala. It, you play soccer, sometimes the ball comes in your direction, and it, it, it hits the wrong part, right? It hits the part that hurts, right? So appropriate response in Guatemala is you fall to the ground, you writhe a little bit, and you cry. And everybody's patting you, saying it's going to be all right, and they pick you up, and you keep going. Uh, grade 8 in North Shore, Chicago, I'm playing soccer. The same thing happens. I get kicked. I fall to the ground. I start weeping, because that's what you do, right? Everybody walks away from me. <laughs> uh, well, needless to say, one whole year's worth of not being able to stop crying, because, you know, my whole life, that's all you did. You just sort of cry when you're happy. You cry when you're sad. Well, at the end of that year, I vowed. I literally vowed that I would never cry again in my life. It was too embarrassing. Like, the, the shame was just too much. People made fun of me. Boys made fun of me. Girls made fun of me. And I was like, man, I don't even know how to turn it off. By the end of one year, I knew how to turn it off, and I shut it down. By the time I reached college at the University of Texas in Austin, I came to believe that the emotions uh, were at best secondary to our intellect. At worst, they could not be trusted. Now, around that time, I found myself angry a lot. I'm not sure why, but I was just angry a lot. And uh, the anger kind of rumbled right beneath the surface on a regular basis, and it made me jumpy. Now, not jumpy like this, jumpy like that. <laughs> uh, and, and literally, actually, I felt like I had this wolf inside of me that was ready to, to pounce. And usually my family took the brunt of my bad moods. Now, uh, while it would not be uncommon for me to suddenly launch into song and dance at the grocery store, um, that my Latin American vibrancy still was at work, and my wife might be embarrassed at that, I lived through most of my 20s and early 30s estranged from my emotions. Now, Jeremy Begbie, the theologian, says this. He says, our emotional lives are messy. They're tangled. They come and go. They jump out at us at all times. 
And we find ourselves alternately governed by them or petrified by them. Boys are taught to shut down their feelings in our North American society, while girls are affirmed for their expression of the affections. Yet, according to studies, curiously and ironically, girls tend to experience more embarrassment, guilt, shame, sadness, and distress than boys. Now, each of you, of course, has your own story. Some of you may feel currently grateful for your family. Others of you may feel embarrassed about them. Some of you may feel confident in your faith. Others of you may be doubting it. Some of you may be worried about your future or feel particularly alive at the moment or wrestling with depression. The fact that few of us have ever heard a sermon on the theological importance of our emotions probably doesn't help matters. Pop quiz. How many of you ever heard a sermon from your pastor on the importance of your emotions? Raise your hand. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Okay, about 7% of you. Point taken. The fact that our society sends a steady stream of confused signals about our emotions only exacerbates our search for emotional well-being. So the question is, how should we as Christians think about our emotions? We certainly have them. So the question is, what do we do with them? Is there a positive role for our emotions to play in our life or in the life of discipleship? And what kind of help might the arts offer us? What I'd like to suggest to you this morning is this. It is not when we let our emotions do whatever, quote, they will do, that we are free. Because when we do that, we get into trouble. We lash out. We sulk. We envy, often in frightfully automatic ways. Instead, it is when we allow Christ to order our emotions by his spirit that we are free. And God has given us the poetry of the Psalms to aid us in this work. And more particularly, in the singing of the Psalms, we learn what it means to have our emotions ordered to the kind of true humanity that characterizes Christ's life. So that'll be the idea that I hope to unpack for you this morning. My task in this talk is to do three things. Uh, One, offer a brief historical perspective on how Christians have perceived the Psalter. Two, to suggest three ways in which the singing of the Psalms contribute to the reordering of our emotions. And three, offer a handful of practical recommendations. Now, it goes without saying that the emotions are complicated territory. Can I get an amen on that? Theorists have offered wide-ranging and often contradictory perspectives on emotions. I'm not going to get into all the theoretical debates. Uh, So for what it's worth, if you have any questions, feel free to ask me afterwards. I'm happy to entertain them. So an historical perspective. From very early on, uh, the church has regarded the Psalter as its official worship book. Now, it's done so for two reasons. One, because of the prominent place that the Psalms play in the life of Jesus and uh, the apostles, appearing no less than 196 times in the New Testament. And two, because of the way that the Psalms capture what John Calvin called the anatomy of all the parts of the soul. Now, in the 6th century, St. Benedict stipulated that all monks and nuns should recite the entire Psalter over the course of one week. In 1529, Martin Luther penned a hymn which he titled, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And does anybody know what psalm he is adapting with this hymn? Anybody? It's right. I didn't know it until I looked it up. It's Psalm 46. Now, a Jesuit priest 
at the time remarked, not without irony, that the, um, the hymns of Luther killed more souls than his sermons. Something to be said for singing. Now, for Calvinists, any Calvinists in the house? The 16th, uh, Calvinists of the 16th and 17th centuries, singing of the Psalms defined them. As one historian puts it, Psalms were sung at the Lord's Mayor, Lord Mayor's feasts at city banquets. Soldiers sang them on the march or beside campfires. Plowmen and carters whistled or sang them at their tasks. And pilgrims sought a new continent in which to gain liberty to sing only the Psalms. Far from being the songs of the sour face, they were sung by ladies and their lovers. <laughs> I guess you never thought about that before with the Psalms, but <laughs> those Calvinists, sneaky, sneaky. Now, for outside pres uh, observers, the Presbyterian Puritans, were uh, 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 they obtained the nickname the Psalm-Roaring Saints. I like that, the Psalm-Roaring Saints. Now, the Scots possess a version of Psalm 23 that is so popular that some have called it the Scots National Anthem. And when British rock star Bono discovered Eugene Peterson's translation of the Psalms in The Message, he found the poetry so compelling that, yes, he sought an audience with Eugene Peterson. Unsuccessfully, I might add. <laughs> now, Bono's pretty powerful, but Eugene Peterson would have nothing to do with Bono. Uh, so here's how Martin Luther sums up the sentiment of the church throughout history. The sum of all is that if you wish to see the Holy Christian Church given a living form and depicted in a painting in miniature, then place the book of Psalms in front of you. You will have a beautiful, bright, polished mirror which will show you what Christianity is. Finally, not only do we perceive all human emotion in the Psalms, which is something that St. Athanasius noted, we also perceive Christ in the Psalms. John Calvin observed in his foreword to the Genevan Psalter, when we sing the Psalms, we are certain that it is as if he himself, Christ himself, were singing in us to exalt his glory. Yet while Christians historically have made much of the Psalter, unfortunately contemporary Christians have made much less of it, to our great loss, I think. Today's a chance then to show how or and see how uh, its poetry might contribute to the right ordering of our emotions. Now, what I mean about this idea of the ordering of our emotions and how does poetry, and particularly the, song, the, the poetry of the Psalms, uh, contribute to the ordering of our emotions. What does poetry, this poetry, do with human emotions that contributes to a reordering of them? So let me do a little bit of unpacking of that, because once I answer that question, then we'll explore how the Psalms does it, in fact. So, number one, the Psalms present a concentrated quality of human emotion. They present a concentrated quality of human emotion. Now, what do I mean by that? Let's take Psalm 51 as an example. King David, you're familiar with it, expresses intense remorse at his sin of adultery and murder. Pretty grievous sins, I think, right? Now, I want to tell you what David doesn't do. He doesn't do this. He doesn't write, man, she was hot, then I took her, had sex, 
Oh God, man, wow, then I got her husband killed. What was I thinking? I kind of wanted him killed, but not. And dude, I messed up real bad. Okay? Sometimes contemporary worship music might sound a little bit like this. Okay? That's not what King David does. King David, uh, keep that up. He avoids uh, this colorful, idiosyncratic detail of his sin. And instead, what he offers is concrete imagery white snow, crushed bones, a broken spirit, an acute perception of God's justice, and a visceral sense of sin, a, consecra- a concentrated quality. What he does is, is he, um, he, uh, there's a theologian, his name's David Ford in Britain. He said, what you find in the Psalms is this very hospitable first-person singular. That is, when David is talking about his first-person experience, it's hospitable in the sense that all of us can find our, our, ourselves within that first person. Whereas in this version right here, it's so particular, so narrow, so idiosyncratic, that many of us, if we sang this or read it, might not see ourselves played out in, in this kind of language. But David offers us a better way. Number two, the Psalms function as a kind of representative for our emotions. So when Psalm 88 says, I'm battered senseless by your rage, relentlessly pounded by your waves of anger, do ghosts ever join the choirs that praise you? Does your love make any difference in a graveyard? It gives voice not only to the psalmist's anger, but to our own anger too. In fact, it gives us permission to feel anger. It's okay to feel anger, the psalmist tells us, because that's an appropriate emotion to feel in light of the experience of abandonment. As such, the Psalms represent our emotions to us. And third, paraphrasing Aristotle, the Psalms encourage us to feel the right emotion in the right way, at the right time, for the right end. Psalms encourage us to feel the right emotion in the right way, at the right time, for the right end. Let's take anger as an example. How many of you have ever felt ang- angry before? Yeah, it's okay. Good. Uh, I and the Psalms tell you it is an appropriate, healthy human emotion to feel. Anger, biblically, is appropriate. How we use it, however, makes a world of a difference. So, Jesus cleansing the temple, appropriate expression of anger. Hannibal Lecter, inappropriate expression of anger. Anger is not the problem. Mishandling it is. To summarize them, in the Psalter we find edited poetic language that gives expression to our unedited emotions. Or as Old Testament scholar Ellen Davis says, the Psalms enable us to bring into our conversation with God feelings and thoughts most of us think we need to get rid of before God will be interested in hearing from us. Now, I think that's really good news. I, I would say amen to that. It's incredibly freeing. It's a freedom, in fact, to be fully human, unstifled by fear. So today I would like to suggest to you that the singing of the Psalms cultivates three emotions that are proper to our true humanity. First, Singing the Psalms cultivates an energetic joy in God and in His creation. Now, I thought to myself, what, 
What is it that Canadians get really fired up about? And I, I thought of things that might be stereotypical, but you guys are going to have to confirm it for me. So one thought was, I think Canadians get pretty fired up about hockey, and particularly winning the Olympics. <laughs> is, is, is that accurate? Okay, all right, all right, just wanted to confirm that. Maybe Wayne's World? Oh, that's a little bit old school. I, I don't know. Strange Brew? Totally old school. But I think some Canadians got pretty excited about that. Definitely Shania Twain. Come on, you know you get excited. Brian Adams, that's it, right? Okay, what is it the Canadians get really fired up about? Come on. What? Beaver tails. <laughs> um, come on, what is it? You guys are the Canadians? Huh? Maple, maple syrup? Maple? Bacon? Yeah. I don't have a bacon image up there, but let's just think, there's bacon. Okay. Um, I have been to hockey games in the great country of Canada, and I have seen Canadians get a little bit fired up. In fact, I'm staying at a, at a hotel right now uh, where I don't understand the dynamic, but during the day, no, no cars. At night, there are like 300 trucks there. I don't know who is having a convention, but big mammoth, like Texas-sized trucks there. And they are all watching sports. I walk by the little windows in there, and they're getting pretty fired up. So I'm going to see if Canadians can show me what fired up looks like. Now, Psalm 98, 4 to 6, says, shout. Okay. Now, when the Psalms say shout, I think it's important to obey the Scriptures, right? We're not just hearers of the Word, but doers of the Word. So uh, I'm going to have you stand up with me right now. And um, I know it's going to feel a little bit weird, but, you know, Tyndale cares about the scriptures. I know. I'm going to call your, your Bible teachers. Um, so, okay, ready? Just a, it's a big breath. Uh, I'm not going to shout because it's going to drown out the audio here. Uh, big breath. We're going <clears> to... <throat> okay, let's, let's do a trial run. Just a first line, normal voice. Okay, ready? Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth... Break forth and sing for joy and sing praise. Okay, that's great. Okay, so shout is like 10 times more of that, right? Okay, just pretend hockey Canada actually won the cup uh, or Vancouver won the cup, um, not the Boston Bruins. Um, okay, so Colin, I'm not going to shout. Okay, ready? You guys ready? One, two, three. Keep going. Alright, alright, that's good. You can have a seat. You guys are awesome. You just made the audio so much better. Okay, so he, here's the point. How, how many of you have ever uh, read the Psalms that way during a church service? <laughs> Probably not much. But um, I have a feeling around David's time, there's some shouting. I have a feeling at the end of time, there's going to be some shouting. Not all shouting, but a little bit of shouting. Now, in the Psalms, we find some strong verbs. Bursting, 
reveling, clapping, thundering, crying, exulting. The Psalter pulls us into a playful, even a fantastical world where trees sing and mountains dance and God ascends with a shout. Is it then any surprise that pop rock or folk rock or post rock or punk rock have often been found to be suitable musical carriers for that energy? When the Psalms, uh, say Psalm 98, 4, charges all the earth to shout for joy to the Lord, it isn't exactly a hypothetical invitation. It's shout time. And sometimes that's exactly what you need to do, to shout and perhaps jump. And I don't know if I have time for this, but I'm just going to show you a little clip. This is a Rwandan Anglican uh, church. A friend of mine uh, videoed it. I asked if I could borrow it. It's a little little group of people, but I love the guy who's like the worship leader. It's this guy. Okay, I'm going to play like 30 seconds. And then this guy walks into the camera. Okay, so there's that. Now, granted, joy has a wide range. It ranges from a deep, quiet contentment all the way up to an electric ecstasy. And the Psalter captures this range. Psalm 3011, you turn my wailing into dancing. You clothe me with joy. Psalm 126.2, our mouths are filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Now, for Christians, either to ignore these kinds of statements or to tone them down seems to reflect less a biblical reality than perhaps a cultural one. And against the practices of churches who pretend to shout or do so only tepidly, the psalmist invites us actually to joyfully shout or revel or thunder. When we do so, by the way, I, I think we become like the musicians of the Franciscan order of the medieval age who are called the jongleur of God. Now, what would be an example in contemporary worship music of somebody who's created uh, music or a song where there's this energetic joy in God and in his creation? I think Matt Redman. Y- y'all familiar with Matt Redman? Yeah? Y'all ever seen Matt Redman around here? Okay, so his latest album, 10,000 Reasons, has this one uh, song called We Are the Free. I'm just going to play uh, a little clip of it as an example of something that would and does occur in some worship settings that expresses this kind of energetic joy in God. Let's see if we can get it there.
that in every context, every setting, every cultural context, this might look differently. But nonetheless, the Psalms invite us into a holy energy that matches the laudability of God, not, mind you, to uncontrolled wildness. Second, the singing of the Psalms cultivates a capacity for lament. What needs lamenting? Well, I'm sure you can think of things, but I'll give you a few examples. Global tragedy, spousal abuse, the betrayal of a friend, failure, racism, or the fact, as a recent study showed, that many churches are ignoring the problems of the real world. These are things that, that require or invite lamenting. St. Gregory the Great, 6th century, once wrote, If remorse is poured out through the singing of psalms, then a way to the heart emerges in us, at the end of which we reach Jesus. To lament, he says, is to tap into the heart of Jesus, the one who bears all our grief and grieves with us. All throughout the Psalter, the psalmist expresses feelings of sadness, of anger, of doubt, of depression, as it were, the darker human emotions. Take Psalm 22, for example. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, and then not silent. Psalm 88, 18, takes this feeling of despair to a very bitter conclusion. You have taken my companions and loved ones from me. The darkness is my closest friend. I can imagine many of you have probably felt this at some point in your life. Brueggemann, Walter Brueggemann, the Old Testament scholar, describes this pattern of lament in the Psalter as the experience of disorientation because it is when everything in, on, in heaven and on earth seems skewed. And it's important to note that the Psalms, many of the Psalms, refuse to resolve this experience of disorientation. They leave the worshiper with tensions that will only resolve themselves by a more painful self-surrender to God. But while the Psalms of Lament entail the greatest portion of the Psalter, Christians have not always known how to sing these Psalms. Yet there they remain, vocalizations of abandonment, bitter complaints against injustice, stern cries for vengeance, Confessions against the unbearable weight of God's silence. Detailed descriptions of physical deterioration and entreaties to the Almighty to deliver His people from evil forces. And here's the truth. You and I know exactly 
what it's talking about, what the Psalms are talking about. We have seen these things. We have felt these things. And if we haven't, there's a good chance our neighbors have. And the Psalms invite us to the discipline of lament. So uh, who in contemporary worship music might uh, be doing good work with this category of lament? I think Sandra McCracken has done a really nice job in this album of hers in Feast or Fallow. Have you all ever heard of Sandra McCracken? She is um, Derek Webb's uh, wife. Yes, I'm saying. What's his name? Yes, Derek Webb's wife. Uh, I highly recommend this album. It's really nicely done, and there's one song in particular, and I won't play it today, but it's called Justice Will Roll Down. And it's actually a, a song that, that's very singable for congregations. Justice Will Roll Down. But the one I'd like to play now is by Sufjan Stevens uh, from his album Michigan. And uh, the song is titled, Oh God, Where Are You Now? And I'll play a bit of it here. Oh, Lord, save me. 
so nice. This is, it's Sufyan. He just does such a great job. So in sum, uh, for the Christian, sorrow does not end in futile despair. It always has a resurrection in view. At the same time, the Psalms are not asking us to fake it. If we're in the pit, we're in the pit. And the Psalms come along and speak for us, give us language. They give voice to emotions which we urgently need to name. Lament. Third, singing the Psalms uh, cultivates a desire for the intimate love of God. Psalm 63 reads, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my body longs for you. Because your love is better than life, my lips will praise you. According to the latest surveys, one in four Canadians are lonely. 40% of families end in divorce, and 25% of kids in Canada are born into broken families. Is it any wonder that people are desperate to be loved? The Psalms take this desire seriously. Here in the Psalter, there is raw, passionate yearning for God. Psalm 84, 2, my soul longs, yea, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Psalm 38, 9, all my longings lie open before you, O Lord. Psalm 63, 1, as rendered in the message, God, you're my God. I can't get enough of you. I've worked up such hunger and thirst for you, O God. Uh, this language echoes the kind of language that we find in the mystical writings of Julian of Norwich and in the effective vibrancy of Charles Wesley's hymns. Here is a God who loves the wounded of heart. And the next point I'm going to make has a slight humorous uh, element to it, but I think it's deadly serious that a lot of people think that their prayers to God are addressed to data on Star Trek, a completely emotionless affair. But in fact, prayer addressed to God is one that is given as a visceral plea to a father who runs to his wayward son or to his hurting daughter. That's the Father in Heaven that we have, loves us intimately. Now, where might we find this kind of language of expressing this desire for intimate love of God? In the church's music storehouse, I think we have Charles Wesley. So where's, where's my good man, Colin? Colin, you want to come? So I thought what we could do is sing together. So not just play music for you, but we could sing together. One of Wesley's greatest hymns is titled, Jesus, Lover of My Soul, and that we could sing three, three stanzas. Are you all familiar with uh, this hymn, Jesus, Lover of My Soul? Uh, okay, so would you maybe teach us the melody? And maybe run us through, you know, sort of once, and then and then we'll we'll stand and, and join Colin. Does that sound good? Okay.
last verse. You're doing a great job. For our first time. summary, while the invitation to love God intimately is not about self-indulgence or a matter of forgetting that we worship a holy, sovereign God, the Psalms invite us to feel one of the most basic emotions of the human heart, an affectively rich love of God. Last comment, practically, what can we do? How can you and I live into the kind of emotional rhythms that the Psalter offers us? Let me offer quickly two kinds of practical suggestions, two for songwriters and worship leaders and one for all of us. Now, do we have, how many worship leaders or songwriters are in the room? Just raise your hand, don't be shy. Okay, this is for you, okay? Number one, if you're a songwriter or a worship leader, I would like to graciously and gently challenge you. I'd like to challenge you to lead your communities in songs that explore the whole emotional territory of the Psalter. I think the church sorely needs songs to give voice to this whole range of human emotion. And that may mean that we need new music written. So if you are a songwriter, I beg you, I plead with you, write new music. Become a good student of the Psalter and offer that music to your congregations. Number two, I want to encourage you to, to help your congregations or communities sing the psalms in holes rather than piecemeal fashion. That is, too often what we have is snippets from a psalm. And I think what happens is not only do we get a malnourished diet, is we actually lose sight of the theological rhythm or pattern that is at work in a whole psalm. And may, may miss some of the tensions or some of the, the things that the psalms really uh, are commending to us not just the things that we feel like in the moment. And I would say, specifically, sometimes our music appeals too much to what I would call the I wanna versus the I will. That is, I want to give you all my love right now, but next moment I want to not to. But sometimes we need to sing I will. Despite how I feel now, I will praise you. Or maybe I don't have the capacity to, to do much more than just be. Like, I'm not going to run, but, but I don't have much more to give. But I'll just stay here. So we need some, we do need some I wanna's, but we also need some I will kinds of songs. Now, for all of us, I'll offer you the advice that Eugene Peterson gave us in a course that he taught at Regent College. At the end of a course titled Biblical Spirituality, he'd given us not a lick of advice of how to live this biblical spirituality. 
So I raised my hand and I said, uh, Dr. Peterson, what do we do with this? And he's a little bit allergic to giving advice, but this is the one thing he said. He said, David, tomorrow start with Psalm 1, read it. The next day, read Psalm 2, and then the next day, Psalm 3, and go all the way to 150 and start over. And do that and you'll be fine. <laughs> and you know what? It's powerful. So I commend it to you. If you're not sure what you want to do with your devotional life these days, read Psalm 1. Think about it, meditate on it, maybe pray through it. The next day, read Psalm 2. Go 150 days, then start over. Do that for the next 20 years of your life. You'll be doing your soul a good service. The Psalms are there as a gift to us. In conclusion, there's an irony to my experience in my 20s. The result of my attempt to suppress my emotions was not that I mastered my emotions. The result is that they had mastered me. I became not a steward of my anger, but a slave to it. It controlled me, not I it. At its worst, my anger, my uncontrolled anger, led to a damaging dynamic with other friends. God in His mercy did not leave me bereft of help. He surrounded me with a community of dear friends to love me, who introduced me to my heart and initiated a process of rehumanization that continues to this day. And for them, I'm so grateful. So when you and I sing the Psalms, we sing them with saints throughout history, but we also sing them with Christ, who is the chief psalmist. We sing them with Christ, who through His Spirit sings a new song in us. When you and I sing songs of joy or lament, whether we feel like it or not, it reinforces, at times, emotions we already feel. At other times, it cuts against the grain of dysfunctional emotional habits. In both cases, it contributes to the discipleship of our affections. With Christ as our teacher, the Psalms invite us, invite you and invite me, into emotional maturity. But they also invite us into something bigger than ourselves, the reordering of our humanity so that you and I can become agents to the world of the kind of emotional wholeness and freedom that marked Christ's own life. And may God give you the grace and may God give me the grace to live into these things, even if it's taking just a little baby step today. So, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been great to be with you at Tyndale. I think we need to bring this to a close. But if you have any questions afterwards, I'll stick around. But God bless you guys and your studies and in your work. Thank you so much.